Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for the next hour as we ask the question, will this be the day when doves cry or when doves fly? Investors will keep an eagle eye on Fed Chair Jay Powell's press conference later today, hoping to hear hints of change in the central bank's bank's flight path. Will Powell leave the door open for a future dovish policy pivot or will he parrot his previous hardline on inflation? What Powell says beyond the jumbo and expected, of course, rate hike today will determine where markets head from now on in. JP Morgan says stocks could rally some 10% if there is dovish language in the Fed statement. So what are they going to do in December? That's the big question. For now, caution is the name of the game in the United States, at least after a more choppy than chirpy start to November trading. New numbers show stronger than expected reads on US job openings and on private payrolls. This clearly doesn't align with a more forgiving Federal Reserve on rate hikes. Also, Highlighting the ongoing challenges, economic bellwether mask warning today of, quote, dark clouds on the horizon and signaling a shipping cost peak. We'll speak to the CEO of shipping giant Maersk later on in the program. In the meantime, Snap and Meta shareholders finally getting something to crow about. The two firms that got truly pecked this earnings season, moving higher as an FCC official argues for a U.S. ban on rival TikTok, citing national security concerns centering around its Chinese ownership. As you can see, uh, both, of, both of them getting a boost there. A TikTok ban might help. The Twitter bird, too. Elon Musk has floated the idea of bringing back short-form video service Vine. Musk for now involved in a separate debate revolving around the number eight. He says $8 is the right price to pay for getting a blue tick verification status on the site, emphasizing subscription cash over advertisers and their reliance, especially if some of those big advertisers do take flight. We will discuss later in the show and we're going from blue check to the Fed on deck. And Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, the Fed could ruffle some feathers today. We're keeping those bird analogies going, but I'm done now. It's not really about what they do today. It's what they say in about December. Absolutely. And I think that's what could ruffle the most feathers to keep the bird analogies going, Julia. So you're right. I mean, 75 basis points or three quarters of 1% is pretty much baked in. The Fed, you could argue, has sort of telegraphed that pretty well at this point. The question is, what do they do next in that December meeting? December 13th is when that next meeting kicks off. And Julia, as you know, we have started to get these comments from certain Fed officials like Mary Daly of the San Francisco Fed saying that at some point it will be appropriate to consider slowing rate hikes. The question is, would that happen in this meeting? Would that start to happen in the next meeting? And so investors are going to be clued into every word when we hear from Fed Chairman Jay Powell at 2.30 Eastern about any signs of that pivot of any signs of that pullback in aggressive rate hikes. Of course, if we do in fact see another three quarters of a percent, which we have not seen in modern history, 
it would be the fourth in a row. The Fed has already hiked rates uh, about three percentage points in just the last seven months. And so this is pretty much baked in. But to your point, Julia, the question is, what is ahead? I think it was Bank of America who put out a note this morning or this week, rather, that said it's not about the destination at this point. It is about the journey. How high are rates going and how do we get there? So all eyes are on what's ahead for sure. Yeah. And how quickly are they going to do that? Will it will they make it five for five in terms of those um, three quarters of a, a, a point rate hike? Rahel, we shall see what they have to say today. Yeah. Great to have you with us. Thank you. And here's Rahel now and what could be a stunning political comeback for Benjamin Netanyahu. Early results suggest his Likud party is and its allies will get enough seats to take control of the Knesset, putting Netanyahu on track to lead Israel's most right wing government ever. Hannes Gold is in Jerusalem for us and has been following this story. According to the exit polls, and you can give us the latest, I mean, we're talking about his bloc having a better majority in terms of number of seats than I think anyone expected had us. Right. I mean, when we were looking at the opinion polls leading up to Election Day, the best polls that Netanyahu and his allies were getting showed them at just barely reaching that 61 seats that they needed to form a majority in the Israeli parliament. But so far, the official results, now not all of the results are in yet, but the official results that they've counted so far are showing them having done even better than what those opinion polls showed with a 65-seat majority. So they've got quite a cushion there. Now, there are still about 10% of the votes left to be counted. These are the absent in T-ballots. It's about half a million votes. And sure, there is always the possibility that that could change the numbers. But because Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies have that cushion, even if, let's say, one of these small parties does manage to pass the, thre- th- pass the threshold, get four seats in the parliament, four seats, 65 minus four, that's still 61. Benjamin Netanyahu would still potentially become prime minister. What's really interesting about all this is the rise of the far right, because the far right joint party of religious Zionism and Jewish power, they are set to have something like 14 seats in this parliament. That would make them the third largest party in the Israeli parliament. These are figures who just until recently were thought to be of the extreme fringe of Israeli politics, who a year ago, Benjamin Netanyahu himself was essentially saying, they wouldn't necessarily should or should have a place in an Israeli cabinet. Now, it's not a question of will they have a place, but what positions will they have? What kind of ministerial, ministerial positions will these far right-wing figures have? Now, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, is celebrating. He has not yet come out and done a full celebration because all of the votes are still being counted. Current prime minister, caretaker prime minister Yair Lapid has not yet fully conceded. But here is what Netanyahu said late last night to his supporters. Take a listen. One thing is already clear. Our way, the Likud's way, has proven itself. I remind you that from 52 seats in the last election, we are now on the verge of a very big victory. Now, this could be the most far-right government in Israeli history, and that could be of great concern to Israel's allies like the United States, as well as some of the newer allies like those of the Abraham Accords, like those like the United Arab Emirates, because what will they say when they have ministers in power who have in the past have been convicted for inciting racism against Arabs? We'll wait to see exactly how this new government will shake out. Julia. Yes, a stunning comeback for Benjamin Netanyahu. But to your point, the far right fringe no more. Hadas Gold, thank you so much for that. 
Okay, let's head to China now, where a fresh COVID lockdown is in place. A manufacturing zone that houses Apple supplier Foxconn plant now under a seven-day lockdown. Social media video shows some of the workers fleeing the factory ahead of that measure. Selena Wang joins us now. She is on, we believe, day three of her 10-day quarantine in Beijing. Selena, great to have you with us. Um, Two things for me. One, the impact on workers that are now operating within this factory in a closed-loop system. But the second thing, what does this mean for exports of uh, iPhones, smartphones, from what the biggest manufacturing facility in the world? Yeah, Julia, I mean, this has the potential to seriously curtail the movement of key things in and out of the biggest iPhone factory in the world. The seven-day lockdown is in the area that houses Foxconn's Zhengzhou iPhone plant. This is the biggest iPhone assembly factory in China. The local government said that for the seven days during this lockdown period, they're banning people and vehicles from the streets except for essential reasons. This potentially means that you're going to be cutting off the flow of key workers and components that they need during this critical period, which is just ahead of that holiday season. And this, as we've been discussing, is just the latest disruption to Foxconn. In recent days, there have been workers, according to these viral videos, fleeing the campus in mass, walking by foot many, many miles across highways. Some videos even showing them trekking through farm fields in order to escape these increasing COVID restrictions that they put in place to try and clamp down on this COVID flare up on the campus. So we don't know how many COVID cases have actually been reported. Now that means that again, this could have a big impact on Apple because this assembly factory, it accounts for as much as 85% of iPhone assembly capacity. And CounterPoint Research has estimated that it could impact 10 to 30% of the Apple iPhone 14, jeopardizing that production in the near term if this situation doesn't stabilize. Now, another interesting point about why some of these workers are fleeing, Julia, is because also not just the concern about subpar living conditions that have been reported as well as subpar food that they've been given amid these COVID restrictions, but also general fear among these workers about getting COVID. And we've spoken to a virologist at the University of Hong Kong who has said that China's government's demonization of COVID, the exaggeration of the severity of the virus has meant that order Ordinary people are scared of getting COVID. And we are seeing these people not just scared about the environment they have to live in, in the quarantine bubble, but also the fear of the virus spreading. So serious impact on businesses, not just like Apple, but we've seen other global manufacturers throughout these three years of zero COVID in China have to deal with serious disruptions to their business because of China's continued adherence to zero COVID, Julia. Yeah, it's a fascinating point, not just about the measures, though, now also the fear of actually catching the illness and, and potentially how sick you get. Um, Selena, as I mentioned, day three, your, your shot froze because we had Internet issues yesterday. I was going to ask you because I remember the last time you had this and we were talking about your chocolate supplies. Do you have enough chocolate supplies to last the next seven and a half days? <laughs> You know what I learned from my last experience? I have a lot of chocolate supplies, a lot of granola bars. Last time it was 21 days. So this time 10 days seems like a dream. So I'm like, I can put up with anything if it's just 10 days. Double those chocolate rations. Selena, thank you. Thank you for that.
Okay. Now, just to be clear on actually what we were discussing there, it is interesting to see um, a seeming disconnect between what we're seeing in terms of intensifying COVID lockdowns and the action this week in Asian stock markets. Just take a look at this. And admittedly, we're talking about bounces from multi-year lows, but Hong Kong stocks rallying 2% in Wednesday's session after Tuesday's monster 5% move higher. Shanghai also higher too. This is amid continued speculation, at least on social media, that Beijing might soon form a committee to reassess zero COVID policies with a possible easing of restrictions around the corner. China's foreign ministry, however, saying it's, quote, not aware of any policy change. But interesting to watch what we're seeing, at least as far as investor action is concerned. Now, in the meantime, tensions are rising on the Korean peninsula after both North and South Korea traded a volley of missiles. South Korean officials say the North fired at least 23 missiles earlier Wednesday and around 100 artillery shots. Seoul responded with three air-to-surface missiles of its own. All of the missiles landed in international waters. This latest provocation comes, though, as the United States conducts joint military drills with South Korea. Now, Will Ripley is in Seoul and says it's unusual for South Korea to respond in this manner. It used to be pretty rare that South Korea would respond militarily because the previous president, President Moon, was all about making peace. This new president, President Yoon, is uh, a very hawkish when it comes to North Korea. And so with the United States, they have been very quickly responding. And so they fired three uh, air-to-surface missiles in a precision bombing exercise. And those missiles actually hit close to North Korean territorial waters. So it's really a tit-for-tat escalation here. And this is all on the heels of the Atomic Energy Agency head warning just last week about this nuclear test coming up. Uh, the two uh, defense chiefs from the, uh, South Korea and the U.S. will be meeting at the Pentagon tomorrow, and they certainly have a lot to talk about. And staying in South Korea, investigators have raided a police station in Seoul and seven other offices as they look for answers over the weekend's deadly crowd crush. Officials say they took documents about emergency calls and internal reports. More than 150 people were killed in a massive crowd surge during a Halloween celebration on Saturday. Records show police were warned hours before the tragedy about a potentially dangerous situation. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But straight ahead, dark clouds on the horizon, a stark warning from economic bellwether shipping giant Maersk. Plus, a perfect path to going public. We speak to the Taiwanese tech founder that's helping some of the world's biggest beauty brands. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and on Wall Street, muted action pre-market as investors await the big action from the Federal Reserve later today. Jerome Powell and company set to announce another three-quarters of a percentage point rate hike, which would take borrowing costs to their highest levels since 2008. It's another big day, too, for corporate earnings. Investors paying particular attention to concerns over slowing consumer and business demand. Amazon's weak consumer outlook continues to weigh on its share price, too. The online retail giant falling 5.5% in Tuesday's session, its fifth straight session drop. Amazon now trading at levels not seen since the start of the 2020 lockdowns. Its market cap also below $1 trillion. And warnings too from one of the barometers of global trade. Shipping giant Maersk fears there are, quote, dark clouds on the horizon, citing a looming global recession, high inflation and the energy crisis brought on by the Ukraine war. 
While the company reported total earnings of more than $10 billion in the last quarter, it does believe demand has now peaked. All this comes as Maersk increases its focus on renewable energy and offshore wind, saying there's no choice but to invest in greener initiatives. For more, let's speak to Maersk's CEO, Søren Sko, who's in Copenhagen and joins us now. Søren, always fantastic to have you with us. It was a strong quarter, let's be clear, but all the focus is honed on your concerns about what the outlook is and, of course, uh, the challenges that clearly remain. Yes, uh, clearly, very, very strong. The strongest quarter ever, actually. Uh, yes. but, but also clearly a, a quarter where we see uh, demand dropping. Uh, our, our volumes in our main business, ocean shipping, was down 7.5%. So, so clearly a sign that... Uh, the consumer is not uh, spending as much money as he or she has done uh, in the last few years and probably also a sign that many of our customers have too much uh, too much inventory. I mean, you were already saying last quarter when we spoke that you expected um, a slowdown in, in shipping container demand if we stick with the with the oceans part of the business. I know globally now you're saying a contraction of, of 2 to 4% in 2022, which I think has also caught people perhaps a little off guard today too. Can you break it down to in more detail on what you were saying there? How much of this is some of the, the sort of bottlenecks that we've been talking about now for, for numerous quarters easing further versus a pointed drop in consumer demand? I, I think we, we see a couple of things at play. The first one is that uh, during the pandemic, and this we have also talked about on this show, a lot of us spent money on goods because we couldn't spend it on, on traveling or going to a restaurant and so on. And that, I, I think, particularly for those of our customers that are durable goods, selling durable goods, they see that they sold a lot in 20 or 21 of TVs and, and couches and, and barbecues. And, and obviously, once you buy that, you probably don't have that demand again for another few years. So, so we see that durable goods clearly being down. But, but also, uh, the, the general uh, consumption uh, is weighed down by very, very negative uh, sentiments. Certainly in Europe, where I am right now, we have a war on our doorstep and, and also a, an energy crisis to the point that uh, many, many people fear whether they can, they can pay for their energy bill, the, 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 the heating bill or the electricity bill this, uh, this winter. That's clearly weighing down on consumption. We're seeing a little bit of the same in the, in the U.S., so so, 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 both less demand, but also probably that we we took prepone some of the demand to 2021. Let's hone in on Europe just briefly, because, again, this is a conversation that we were having last month and you were already uh, sorry, last quarter and you were already saying um, stockpiles are building up in ports. You can see it. Warehouses are filling up. Are we in your mind, based on what you've seen in the past in in cyclical terms too, talking about recession? Yeah, I'm not a macroeconomic economist, but I would be surprised if Europe is not in recession by now. Uh, and, and, and there's, a, I think, a, a chance that it, we will also see that in the U.S. Uh, sometime, uh, so, so, sometime next year. I do have to say, though, that uh, while all of this is impacting our, if you will, our shipping business, our ocean business, we're still growing a lot in logistics. I mean, we grew... Uh, 60% in this quarter compared to the same quarter last year. 26% of that was organic. So, so we see plenty of, if you will, growth potential uh, in in our industry as our customers are still busy reconfiguring global supply chains after the pandemic. 
And where specifically, where do you see investment opportunities as you look around the world and where are you willing to invest, I think, based on the challenges that we've, we've already mentioned? Because to your point, you have had numerous incredible high performance quarters and, and have cash available to spend. Yeah, so clearly uh, on, online businesses, so fulfillment is, is an, an yeah. area of investment for us uh, in general contract uh, logistics, so, so, so warehousing, but also uh, when it comes to uh, supply chain management, uh, which are more of a tech, tech, tech play in, for, for us in our business, we see plenty of, of, of growth opportunities. People are, are reconfiguring supply chains. They are moving to several or more suppliers, more geographically spread. That fragments the supply chains, makes it more complicated. That's an opportunity for us. Our customers are also uh, increasingly, you know, having an omni-channel logistics strategies. They need to be able to, if you will, fulfill or deliver goods both to physical stores and to the consumer store. That's that's another complication in the global supply chain that we can we can help with. Uh, and and then many of our customers really see how they're looking to see if they can outsource part of the management of their supply chain. So these are are really the areas where we are investing uh, in terms of our logistics uh, business. And we can expect we'll continue to grow uh, more than 10% organically uh, uh, every year, irrespective of what the what the global market is doing. Yeah, and that's where your breadth and geo geographical footprint really um, comes into play as well. Um, last month, you wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times, and, and I loved it. You were talking about creating an environment where we see a, um, the equivalent of a space race, but for green investment and, and green technologies, and particularly a focus on renewables. And you pointed out that the United States, in the Inflation Reduction Act, necessarily called that for, for political reasons, perhaps, but actually the focus really was on renewable investment and, and green technology investment. And you, you said they've thrown the gauntlet down now for other parts of the world to really focus on investment. Talk me through what you're seeing. Well, c clearly, the uh, other than the name of the uh, Reduction <laughs> yeah. Inflation Act, then every, the rest is really impressive, uh, or the contents is really impressive. The, you know, U.S. is is really going from uh, a position of a little bit of a lagger to actually be out in front in terms of thinking about how to how to uh, transition from the uh, you know do a green transition. It's it's really important. Uh, it it halves uh, the cost for producing uh, green hydrogen, uh, half the cost of, of, of wind and, and, and solar in the U.S. It's, it's, it's super significant. And I wrote this uh, op-ed not so much to the U.S. audience, but more to the European audience mm. saying, hey, you guys, you think that the Europeans, we are way ahead here, but look at what the Americans did. Uh, and for us, for Merck, this is uh, truly important because our climate transition is about going to green fuels that will be produced with a starting po point of renewable, uh, renewable energy, and 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 therefore we, we we really clearly want to see people invest in a new energy system so that we can we can uh, run our ships without emitting CO2 in the future. Yeah, I mean this has to be about public-private partnerships as well. No one's going to do it alone, no matter how much the private sector forces it or governments talk about it. Um, this has to be in partnership. I know you're heading to Egypt as well, and there is going to be a focus on reducing the carbon footprint of the shipping industry in particular. Um, how confident are you that we get concrete action and concrete focus, I think, from governments around the world, to your point? 
I, I do think that uh, lots of things are going on. Uh, clearly, it was an important step in, 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 in the US. Uh, many countries, Egypt being one of them, uh, actually see this energy transition as a huge opportunity for creating new industries. So they, of course, very interested uh, in that. On, the, on, on our side, uh, you know, we, we, have, we have figured out what our technical pathway to decarbonize our ships is. But, but equally important, we are also seeing uh, customer uh, customer demand for carbon neutral uh, solutions. This past quarter, we reached basically 3% of our volumes that we ship on the ocean uh, being shipped now on, on carbon neutral uh, fuels or on, uh, using biodiesel uh, for that. And this is, has come out of nowhere and we, we continue to see increasing demand for, for, for solutions. Most of our customers our large customers, they have set their own targets for becoming carbon neutral, and they need to be able to buy products uh, that help them do that. Yeah, and they're turning around to you and saying, hey, you've got to help us achieve those targets, so we need to be focusing on green fuel. Yeah, it should be self-reinforcing. Um, so always great to chat to you. Thank you so much, the CEO of Nurse there, and congrats on a good quarter. Challenges ahead. Okay, while we're talking climate, join us on Thursday for our second annual Quarter Earth Day, 24-hour global day of action to raise awareness of environmental issues and to engage with conservation education. And you can follow along online at our special page, cnn.com slash call to earth day. More to come after this. Welcome back to First Move and new developments this morning. Russia is rejoining a UN-brokered deal that guarantees safe passage for Ukrainian grain exports in the Black Sea. This comes just days after Moscow pulled out of the agreement, blaming Ukraine for a drone attack on its ships off the coast of annexed Crimea. Wheat and corn prices are falling following that announcement, as you can see on the screen there. The United States ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, gave her reaction on CNN's This Morning. And I was delighted to hear this news, and I want to first commend the UN, the Secretary General in particular, for continuing to negotiate this important deal because it's providing uh, needed food to the world. Uh, so clearly Russia was uh, finally convinced that they needed to continue this. They can't stand in the way of feeding uh, the entire world. 66 million tons of grain have been shipped from the Black Sea since this deal started. And the vast majority of that is going to poor countries in yeah. need of wheat. World Food Program, for example, gets about 50 percent of the wheat that it uses for humanitarian assistance from Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine's grain exports are down more than 30 percent so far this year from a year ago. That, according to data from the country's agriculture ministry. And joining us now is Markian Dimitrisevich. He's Ukraine's deputy minister of agrarian policy and food. Deputy minister, thank you for joining us on the show today. Uh, the decision by Russia to rejoin this deal must be a huge relief in Ukraine, too. Yes, it, it is very important for Ukraine to, to make this grain corridor stable and operational and to continue uh, to be working. But nevertheless, this latest statements of Russia uh, had some impact on insurance companies. 
you may be aware of uh, that that a few insurance companies uh, not pro are not providing uh, insurance for vessels and cargoes uh, after the statement of Russia. Deputy Minister, just to be clear, you're saying that the insurers that were providing insurance to these ships and to the crews to carry this grain are still saying that they won't provide insurance despite the fact that Russia is saying it's back involved with this deal? Not exactly. That statement from insurance company were made after the statements of um, of exiting Russia from right. this agreement. But at the moment, we expect to be this insurance provided uh, to, to continue to be provided. OK, so they'll come back now that they believe that, that Russia is back on board. Do you expect them to charge more, perhaps? Uh, we don't we, we don't want to uh, this situation to happen because logistic uh, logistics prices for our farmers in Ukraine are already uh, pretty high in comparison with the period uh, before 24th of February. Mm. I'll talk about that in a moment. Something else that the Russian Defense Ministry said today was that they'd been provided with sufficient guarantees. Can I ask if you have any understanding or knowledge of what those guarantees to Russia are? Um, uh, unfortunately, I, uh, I have no details and I cannot provide you, but I can say that we were completely in line with uh, uh, Grain Initiative Agreement. We, uh, all the obligations under Ukraine uh, were completed by us. Can I ask you, and I understand that you may not have information on this, how confident you are that the existing deal can be extended beyond the middle of November when it was set to expire anyway? Can it be extended in light of, of recent challenges? We, exp we expect this agreement to be uh, continued because it's stipulated in the agreement that it continues automatically. And for the next period. Well, that would be good news, certainly for, for many countries around the world, including in Ukraine and Russia, of course, that has its own grain to, to export. Can I just confirm the statistic that I mentioned when I introduced you that exports from Ukraine are down just over 30 percent this year compared to last year? Yes, that, that's right, because uh, you understand the situation at the after 24th of February, uh, for example, in March, we expert, exported about 300,000 tons in comparison with previous year when we exported five or six million tons uh, per month. I think the fears, though, initially were that actually exports might be a lot lower. So it's in incredible, actually, that your farmers and the ship providers and the exporters have managed to do so much. Part of the challenge was that farmers didn't know what they'd be able to export. So prices in Ukraine fell, which is a concern for farmers deciding how and when to plant if they could. And obviously the costs of doing that through things like energy prices got higher. So the government and yourselves had to provide more money to the farmers to support them. Where are we today in terms of the challenges of, of planting 
and the gap, the financial gap in being able to do so? Partially, this problem of uh, lack of working capital was solved by uh, soft loans from our Ukrainian banks under the governmental guarantees. So our um, farmers had enough uh, funds for this year's sowing and harvesting campaign. But obviously, high prices for fuel, fertilizers and for seeds, uh, they have a um, negative impact on uh, on our farmers. And we uh, already can see the deduction of sowing areas for winter crops uh, for about 30-40%. Uh, Wow. Unfortunately. So you, wow. So, so for next year, we're saying that crops, even if everything goes well, are going to be down 30 to 40 percent. Uh, I talked about this year's winter crops sowing right. campaign. It's an on, ongoing campaign. If we talk about uh, next year's sowing, spring sowing campaign, we uh, expect deduction of sowing areas for additional 20 percent minus in comparison with this year and uh, in 2022 we had deduction of uh, sowing areas uh, in uh, spring uh, sowing campaign also for 20 percent so this situation is not very good and stable in terms of uh, global food security no it's not at all um Quite frightening, to be honest, I think is the word I'd use. Um, Deputy Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the work um, that you're doing, and, and we appreciate you joining us today, Ukraine's Deputy Minister thank of you. Agrarian Policy and Food. Sir, thank you. Okay, after the break, a virtual reality check through those shop testers in the bin. Up next, the founder of Perfect Corp, the brand that's redefining try before you buy in beauty and beyond. Welcome back to First Move, and it's a um, U.S. Federal Reserve releasing its interest rate decision in a little over four hours from now, with a Jay Powell presser coming soon after. And as we've discussed, a three-quarters of a percent hike in borrowing costs is a virtual certainty. Lots of hopes, too, for some kind of Fed policy pivot in the Fed's messaging. But new numbers out today show U.S. private payrolls rising by a higher-than-expected amount last month. The U.S. labor market clearly not slowing as much as the Fed might like, and that will only make its inflation fight harder. All this as political pressure builds on the Federal Reserve too. Democratic senators sending a letter to Jay Powell on Monday warning that he's raising rates at a, quote, alarming pace. Who ever said the Federal Reserve's job was easy? No one right now. Now, as we await the Federal Reserve's action and decision, U.S. stocks, as you can see, opening lower. Today's central bank decision is crucial for direction, if nothing else. Powell truly needs to be perfect in his messaging. And speaking of perfect, could this be the perfect IPO? Well, for the beauty and the fashion industry and their consumers, it might just be. Ringing the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange this week, the founder and CEO of tech unicorn Perfect Corp, Alice Chang. Perfect raised $119 million in the now challenged reverse merger or SPAC 
special purpose acquisition company Space. The firm says it utilizes artificial intelligence and augmented reality to help big brands like Estee Lauder, Clinique, Meta and Google provide 3D facial modeling, diagnostics and product testing. Perfect also owns You Can Makeup, an app for virtual testing of makeup, skincare and hairstyles and provides product recommendations too. And I'm pleased to say Alex Chan is the founder and CEO and joins us now. Alice, fantastic to have you with us on the show. I have to say, it's a tough time, I think, broadly to go public. It's perhaps a tough way of going public. And it's also a huge moment for you and the brand. How does this moment feel, first and foremost? <laughs> this is an incredible and significant moment for a great milestone for Perfect Core. After seven years, we started in a 2015 and you know how how up and down the market is the generation of the market is um we are so confident now our business model is so viable very robust all the beauty brands can leverage our ai ar technologies uh to improve their user retention rate to engagement and also in, in decrease their operating cost so this is a market up and down and IPO can let us uh, get access to the public uh, capital markets, give us more opportunity uh, to accelerate our business uh, uh, globally and also uh, increase our research and R&D in uh, uh, AIAR. We will heavily, we can uh, know there to increase more on AI and AR since this is just the beginning using AI AR to help the beauty and the fashion and more, all the uh, virtual try-on, all the uh, personal recommendation. I believe this is the future for all the AR commerce. I feel like the pandemic was perhaps your moment because traditionally, whether it's luxury goods like watches, um, makeup, for example, you wanted to physically try something. The pandemic became a moment where suddenly, combined with the kind of technology that you're talking about, you can do all of these things online. You can have a picture of yourself. You can see what you look like with pink hair or wearing a new watch. And I think that's, for me at least, what these big brands see in your potential. It's about not necessarily having to be physically present, but to try a whole range of products. In terms of the financials of your business, is it those client relationships and providing the software that is the the sort of financial underpinning versus consumers going on an app and sort of playing for themselves? What's the balance right now? Uh, Yes, um, you know, the uh, shoppers, beauty shoppers, fashion shoppers are everywhere now. They don't just go to the store. They go to brand.com, retailer.com. They, they watch a video like YouTube, they search, they chat on Snapchat. So we create a platform for all the uh, beauty shoppers, beauty lovers can uh, take uh, the virtual try on anytime, any place. So there's no limitation for the brand to reach out to their customer. And exactly the customer can try, the shoppers can try on their own face, on their own hands before they can they decide to buy or not. This is the first time because uh, using AI AR, then uh, the user, they don't need to go to the shop to try. 
they can try before they buy. And I believe that more trial, more sales, uh, for consumer, more, more trial, more buys, because they know if that uh, a product, the skew, the color fits their own face, or mm. if this uh, watch can uh, be good on their own hands. Exactly. So, yeah, you can, you can, you can buy sell. online potentially without actually having to, to be in store to try it. Um, but are you profitable? I know you're in a growth phase, but is the business profitable? Yes, the adjusted EBITDA is positive. So uh, uh, we are keep on growing and this is uh, to the enterprise. Uh, and then we trying to uh, expand. This is uh, more uh, to uh, beauty and the fashion uh, business side. And also uh, and the, the end user may try on the app, uh, may try on the web, may try in the store, even go to the store, you can free trial. Yes, the... Uh, Adjusted EBITDA right now is already positive. So this is uh, quite good to have a growth of the revenue and also a uh, positive uh, adjusted EBITDA. Yeah, I think it's important for investors to know that um, at this moment. I think the other thing that we should mention is that the company was founded, born in Taiwan. It's a huge moment for Taiwan too, to have created a unicorn, not only for you and to have now seen you you go public. Um I think there's a huge growth opportunity in Asia. You've mentioned that. There's clearly a growth opportunity in China too, should you choose it. It's also a difficult time in terms of the geopolitics. How do you navigate that as a, as a business leader at this moment, at a time of um, where I think everyone in the world is looking at Taiwan and, and, and wondering what happens next? How do you navigate that? What? Yes, uh, for political situation, that's uh, uh, we we are embracing it, and mm. and at the same time, you can know Taiwan is the uh, best place to have our R and D R and D headquarters in Taiwan. Mm. We got a lot of talented uh, engineers, not only in semiconductor but also software, and we have uh, uh, like twelve cities around the world to uh, meet all our beauty and fashion brands. That's our business uh, from this global business, but all the engineers uh, can uh, develop the best uh, cutting edge uh, technology, AI, AR technology from Taipei, from Taiwan. So I think this is a good, very good combination. Uh, doing uh, have a development in Taiwan, Taipei, and then uh, doing the global business everywhere, everywhere. Like I am in uh, New York City now, <laughs> last uh-huh. week in Tokyo. So, well, I tell you what, beauty, um, yeah, I was going to yes. say, I tell you what, you're a great ambassador for, for Taiwan and in particular the tech space, as you said, it's it's not just about semiconductors. There's other uh, technologies being developed there, too. Um, Alice, we have to leave it there. But congratulations. Great to have you on the show. And um, I look forward to tracking your progress. Uh, Alice Chang, there, founder and CEO of Perfect Corp. Great to have you with us. Okay, coming up, Elon Musk's figure of eight. Twitter's new owner saying $8 is great for a blue tick rate. Some users, though, remain a little irate. That's next.
Welcome back to First Move. Elon Musk's critical revenue-seeking mission for Twitter is already running into some slight resistance. Users are seeing red over his plans to charge a monthly fee for blue verification status. Musk acknowledging the fuss, saying in a tweet, quote, to all the complainers, please continue complaining, but it will cost $8. There was a fun reference to Monty Python in that tweet as well. All this, as Musk says, suspended accounts from figures like Donald Trump won't be reinstated immediately. And Paul LaMonica joins us now. For everyone who didn't see that tweet, he references a Monty Python skit, which everyone should watch because it's really funny. Paul, are you going to pay the $8? I am not going to pay the $8, Ooh, to be honest. Really? I, I don't think that the blue check mark is worth it uh, for my money, to be honest. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see, Julia, whether or not there are corporations that will pay for their employees to keep the blue check mark. I, I just wonder, in an environment that we're in right now where there are all these concerns about people cutting streaming subscriptions because of uh-huh. recession worries. Is Musk miscalculating the demand for the blue check mark? Will people really pay at the same time that they are scrapping Netflix and Disney Plus and even uh, Warner Brothers Discovery owned HBO Max and other streaming services? Maybe Musk isn't really reading the room, so to speak. So this is why, or just one of the reasons actually why I love your brain, because I went the same route and I was doing a mental calculation in my head, actually, how much time and I have a whole host of subscriptions that I actually spend watching streaming services versus how much time I get information, listen to what's being done, read on Twitter. And I made the mental calculation that actually I would pay it and I will pay it. And I think he's perhaps doing that, too. So I'm interesting. It's interesting that you said you wouldn't. Um, But that doesn't stop the whinging. Paul, do you think this is a viable way to monetize? For me, the critical juncture here, and he's already hit upon it, is to remove the bots. I'm not saying you clean up the content and people can be verified if they pay and they still could put fake information or misinformation on on the Internet. But even just establishing that everybody who uses this is real. And if the blue tick assessment and paying does that, perhaps, is that not one benefit? Yeah, I I think you are correct, Julia, that clearly Twitter under Elon Musk, just like Twitter before Musk owned it, had a problem with content moderation. And that is why they will need, and it looks like Musk has suggested, there will be a content moderation board that is going to take several months to make some decisions about people, including some with blue check marks, most notably former President Donald Trump, who have been kicked off the platform. And I think that just because someone gets verified, that doesn't mean that they have to follow, that they they have to follow all the right rules for uh, moderation of content. Yes, I do have to say though, um, and just being on social media, you get abuse, you do, because people are like that. I would actually love to know if I'm being abused by a real person versus a bot because then I would be less hurt. So um, just making sure that everyone who's using it- A person created the bot, it's still hurtful. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's true. Yeah. In which case, I'll just shut up. Paula Monica, thank you so much. I rarely do that. Paula Monica, thank you. And that's it for the show. If you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. And I'll see you tomorrow.
Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.